Uh, we're at day 35 of our 40 days of prayer that we started uh, on July 1st. Uh, I hope this time has been a real blessing to you guys uh, as much as it has been to uh, Pastor Brian and myself. And uh, more than that, we hope that these days of prayer would become a life of prayer. Um, we called it 40 days of prayer, but it's not like after 40 days we want you guys to stop praying. Amen. Uh, we want intentional uh, and selfless prayer to be our normal bend rather than the exception and rather than a, a specific time of year that we just come away and that we spend time in prayer. At the start of our 40 days, we gave everybody a list. Uh, Pastor Brian has referred to it uh, many times over the last few weeks, a, a list of specific things that we were uh, believing God for and praying for and uh, commended to you. Uh, to join with us to pray for, and uh, we'll touch on a few of those things this morning that we hope will serve to undergird and encourage you as you pray for those things and labor uh, in those things. The first of which is a prayer for consistency in our habits of grace. Uh, that's combination of word, fellowship, word, prayer, and fellowship with other believers. Uh, the second is prayer for boldness. Uh, in proclaiming the gospel prior to our time in prayer, we were walking through the book of Acts and really just looking at how God was moving in uh, the first church and uh, seeing the great witness that was going forth and seeing the hearts of the people turn to God. And so uh, we want to be praying that we would have that same boldness and that God would make us like the witnesses that we read about in Acts. Amen. And lastly, and it falls right in line with that, and that's prayer for salvation. Uh, we encourage you to uh, pick three people that you knew were not walking with the Lord and earnestly pray that God would turn their hearts. Uh, and so we want to encourage you guys to continue uh, in that prayer. Uh, five days left in the official 40 days of prayer, but don't stop. Amen? Amen. And so for our learning and our encouragement this morning... Uh, Again, for the past few weeks, we've been looking at uh, different prayers uh, from various people in different places in the Bible, Old and New Testament. Uh, this morning, we'll turn our attentions to uh, 1 Kings, as Sister Elizabeth read. Uh, and in light of this fact, that God's heart for his people will always cause God to move on behalf of his people. Amen. As I thought on our text, I took uh, a moment for some self-reflection. It's something that we should have a regular habit of doing as believers. Uh, scripture certainly encourages us in several places uh, to examine ourselves. And so I kind of thought on how my life was, was measuring up. You know, what did my life say to God about my heart towards him? And, and what, if anything, did my life say uh, to others around me about my my faith in Christ. And in my reflection, I came up on times where um, I felt really affirmed in my faith. Thank you, brother. I felt really affirmed in my faith, but I also uh, came up on times where um, my actions or reactions to people seemed uh, virtually void of faith. I had times where uh, God seemed so close that it, it felt as if I could reach out and touch him. Then I, I also had times where uh, my actions and reactions were, were anything but godly. 
times where my, my words were not salted with salt. There was no soft answer that turned away wrath. There was no grace given. There was no compassion. Have you ever had moments, extraordinary moments with God that were followed by what you felt were massive failures? Times where, uh, or failures where, uh, uh, where you had failures to display the, the good news and goodness of God to those around you, and even more painfully so, failures that left you feeling as if those failures somehow disqualified you or demoted you in the eyes of God. Maybe you, and I've, I've certainly been here, you felt like the prodigal son, seeing the provision that, that God has uh, and, and des- what you desperately needed, uh, and it was in him, but your past or maybe even your present failures were so clear in your view that you couldn't possibly see yourself returning to God as a son. The prodigal son felt this way, and uh, he, he, he prepares this speech that he'll go back to his father and give, and we see it in Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 11. He says, Father, I have sinned against you, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The son thought that his failures disqualified him from sonship. But the son clearly didn't understand the heart of his father. The father sees the son. The scripture goes on to tell of the story. And it says, while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion. And moved in his compassion, the father ran to the son and fell on him and embraced him and and kissed him. You see, it didn't matter where the son had traveled. The heart of his father was still with him. It didn't matter what the son had done, the the heart of his father was still for him. It didn't matter how others viewed him, the heart of his father still celebrated him as a son. And in moments where we lose our way or or, or to borrow from Galatians 2, we get out of step with him or in the gospel or, or fail to rightly represent him, our God is still with us and for us and he still celebrates us as sons and daughters of God. The Father stands watching and waiting for us to turn. But God's love towers above that of the father of the prodigal son. You see, the father of the prodigal son only sat and wait at home waiting for his son to come, but God actively seeks for us. Our God employs witnesses and and mediators. Scripture says in one text we have an advocate with the father, that being Jesus. God looked on us and saw us in our trouble, and he didn't sit there. He, he, actively, he actively took steps to bring us back home. John 3.16, familiar text, for God so loved the world that he gave. He actively seeks our turning. He's seeking our turning through the sending of his son. He's seeking your turning through the gift of his indwelling spirit. He's seeking our turning through his word even seeking our turning through men as he calls men as ambassadors, giving them, giving us the ministry and message of reconciliation, crying on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
Even with Israel, as we find in our text, caught between serving God and Baal, God is still actively seeking their repentance, actively seeking their turning. Again, God's heart for his people will always cause God to move on behalf of his people. And we see this in Elijah's prayer, 1 Kings 18, starting with verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their backs. No, that you have turned their hearts back. Before we jump into the prayer, let's look at what uh, Pastor Brian always referred to as the backstory. What's happening? What's going on around them that Elijah would pray like this? And to catch us up with our text, the, the short version is the, the, the people of Israel didn't see God as enough. On a number of occasions, we see God telling Israel that I will be your God. I will take you as my people and, and, and you will be my people and I will be your God. We see God making good on his promise to deliver them from Egypt. We see God making good on the promise to bring them into the land of promise. And we see Israel losing, losing sight of God's provision and seeking after other, uh, or, or rather seeing the things that other nations and other gods were having, and they desired those things over what God had provided, even above God himself. Hear the hearts of the people in 1 Samuel, as, a, as the elders of uh, Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel saying, now appoint for us a king to judge us. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, God says, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So begins the line of kings over Israel, some good, some not so good. And the particular king that we're dealing with here in our text, Ahab, he was a very not so good king. In fact, this is what God has to say regarding Ahab. In 1 Kings 16, starting with verse 29, he says, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Not a good guy. Listen to the second part of verse 33. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings who were before him. 
Great guy, right? As it went, whenever there was a king that followed the Lord and remembered the Lord, the people also typically followed the Lord. In like manner, whenever there was a king who didn't follow the Lord, the people didn't follow the Lord. The people tend to follow whoever's reigning over them, which is why from the beginning, the time that God led them out of Egypt, it was always God's heart to be their king, to reign over them, that they might follow after him and worship him only. So under Ahab, the people began to worship Baal, but again, God's heart for his people will always move God or cause God to move on behalf of his people. And so God sends Elijah to Ahab. And if we bump up just a couple of verses in chapter 18, starting at 17, hear Ahab's greeting to Elijah. He says, is it you, you troubler of Israel? To which Elijah basically replies, I'm not the troublemaker. You are. Then Elijah proceeds to command the king. Now, mind you, The king's wife, Jezebel, has made a hobby of killing prophets. And here Elijah comes to order the king. In verse 19, he says, Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 450 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Do you think Elijah prayed for boldness? We don't see it here, but you have to be walking in boldness to come up against a person whose uh, family has been killing prophets to the point where Obadiah in the text is hiding prophets in caves. It's 450 of them, 900 if you count both sides, but when the battle comes, only the 450 prophets of Baal showed up. It's just one Elijah. So at the heart of the text to follow is conflict. You have conflict between uh, Elijah and the prophets, and you have uh, uh, conflict between God and Israel. And as we see oftentimes in text, whenever, whenever there's a conflict between God and the people, there's always a mediator, an intercessor, a go-between. There's usually someone that was sent by God and empowered by God, petitioning God on behalf of the people in hopes that the conflict would not end in their destruction, but rather their restoration and preservation. And here that someone is Elijah. So we come to 1 Kings 18, verse 20. He says, so Ahab sent all the people of Israel gathered uh, and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near and and said to the people, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. Elijah's first words to them is a question. But I don't think it was a question that he intended them to answer. I think it was more a question to kind of spark awareness in their own minds of their condition. Much like God in the book of Genesis after the the fall and he uh, comes and he says, Adam, where are you? God certainly didn't need Adam to answer the question to know where Adam was. But God wasn't referring to Adam's physical location any more than Elijah here is referring to the Israel's um, uh, physical condition. 
Elijah is asking Israel, how long do you intend to live life lame? His question is very much a statement. He was saying to them, you were not meant to walk like this. You know that God has commanded that you walk before him and be thou perfect. You know what it looks like to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments. You know the, 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 the rewards for obedience and the consequences for disobedience. What about us? How are we walking? Are we living life lame like Israel was? How long will we live uncomfortably comfortable being out of step with God? Uncomfortable because we know we're out of step with God. We know when we're doing right and we're, when we're not doing right. Amen? But comfortable because sometimes we can be in a place so long that we feel like we can't do anything else. But God already knows our handicap. He's intimately familiar with our weakness and more than that, he stands again watching and waiting to bear the weight so that we can walk without limping. Our lives were meant to be lived as a declaration and a, a boast, not to ourselves, but to our God. If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. In the next verses, we see what extraordinary measures God is willing to go to in order to see the hearts of the people turn back to himself. So we have Elijah on one side and the 450 prophets of Baal on the other. An agreement was start, struck between Elijah and Israel saying that um, they'd have themselves a little challenge. The 450 prophets of Baal would take a bull and prepare it uh, for what would be a burnt offering. And Elijah would take a bull and prepare it for a burnt offering. And the agreement was made that the God who answers by fire, he is God. Latter part of verse 24, the people said it is well spoken, basically saying we agree. So Elijah set the terms and said that the prophets of Baal, since you are many, you can go first. And we pick up in verse 26, and they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of the Lord. Excuse me, no they didn't. And called upon the name of Baal from morning to noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing or, or meditating, or he is relieving himself, it says, or in the bathroom, or he's on a, a, a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. He is really taunting them. Scripture says that this went on past midday, but there was still no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. And as if the odds were not already high enough for Elijah, you got 450 against one. Elijah prepares his burnt offering. He uh, uh, rebuilds the altar. He instructs them to build a trench around the altar. So they dig the trench, they lay out the wood, they lay out the sacrifice, and then Elijah gives this instruction. Fill four jars of water and pour it over the sacrifice. Elijah does know this is a burnt offering challenge, right? Have you ever tried to burn wet wood? 
it doesn't work too well, right? But Elijah gives us gives this instruction a second time and a third time, and they fill it to the point. Scripture says that the water ran around the altar and filled the trench. He was one man against 450 with a waterlogged sacrifice and a burnt offering challenge. Sounds like a job for God, amen? And so again, Elijah prays, and God answers. It didn't matter that the deck was really stacked against him. There was more of them seemingly, more that was against him than was for him, and his sacrifice was soaked. Verse 36, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this People may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. To see it, just to see it. So what do we learn from Elijah's prayer? We learn that God is not a respecter of person. As Elijah prays, he addresses God in a way that God often uses to reveal himself to a successor of the promise he made to Abraham. We can pray with confidence knowing that when we pray for God's glory and according to his word, he will hear and respond. We learn that God wants to use our lives to display his glory and his goodness to others. Whether you currently feel like Israel who strayed from God or Elijah, the obedient servant, we can pray knowing that God has a plan for our lives. Jeremiah 29 and 11 says, plans for our welfare and for our good and not for evil to give us a hope and a future. It didn't matter that Israel had been kept by Ahab. He said 22 years he served and were following other gods. God still is seeking their repentance. Amen. We learn that the Lord is God. He's sovereign. He's mighty and nothing is impossible to him, whether 450 prophets with Baal or a soaked burnt offering. God is able to save to the uttermost. When we're facing a a multitude of enemies, when we're struggling to overcome years uh, of sin, wondering if God is really God or not, we can pray big prayers knowing that he is God and that God is enough. Amen? So wherever you are this morning, and again, oftentimes we can find ourselves playing both a part of Elijah, the obedient servant who believes God for the impossible. Can you imagine the look on their face when he says, pour water over it? And then a second time and a third time. So whether we're Elijah or whether we're Israel, the stubborn stiff-necked people who constantly see the promise but always somehow pass over the promise and over the promise keeper. 
no matter where you are this morning, God wants to use you. And he's using both people here in this text. If you're Elijah, God is empowering you for service, sending you to the aid of somebody who needs to hear from you, sending you to somebody who needs to see God at work, and he will send you. Let him empower you for service. If you're Israel, please again see what great lengths God is willing to go to see your heart turned back to himself. Your time wandering in the wilderness or serving other gods has not diminished God's love for you. He desires to use even you. Reminded of Jesus' words to Peter just before telling him of his pending denial of Christ, Jesus says, the enemy has commanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. His love for us goes beyond our failures. The word of the Lord saying in Romans, God demonstrated his love for us in this way. While we were yet sinners, Christ died. He is that loving father watching and waiting for you to turn. But he's not waiting to shame you as a sinner. He's waiting to celebrate you as a son and daughter of God. Amen? And when we pray, we can believe that that is the heart of God for his children. Let us pray.